the long quotation from Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury, something which I hadn't done before. Still a great book. And I'm going to start with another quotation from that same book. And it's actually the afterword of the book that was written after the book was criticised. And the author writes an afterword. It's magnificent. If, if you want wonderful writing, read the afterword by Ray Bradbury about the criticism of his book. And in the criticism, they criticise that he constantly digresses when he writes his novel. And wonderfully, he answers. I'm just going to read his answer. Forgive me for indulging myself. I loved reading this when I first read it. For let's face it, digression is the soul of wit. Take philosophic asides away from Dante or Milton or Hamlet's ghost, and what stays is dry bones. Lawrence Stern said it once, digressions are the sunshine the life, the soul of reading. Take them out, and one cold, eternal winter would reign in every page. Oh, I love that. I love it. I love it because I digress. I'm always digressing. If I'm telling a story, I'm going to go off the point. I'm going to go up rabbit trails because I'm interested in this and interested in that. Well, I want to say I'm in good company today because as we continue our studies in 2 Corinthians, Paul is going to be guilty of serious digression. Serious digression. Now, the first few verses that, we look, that we're looking at are not digression, and I'm just going to note them very quickly before we go on Paul's digression together today. Paul, once again, changes his mind. He goes to a place called Troas in the north, uh, I think it's the north of Greece, is it? Or no, the north of um, somewhere, don't worry, the map will come up uh, before long, all right? And, and he stops at Troas, and when he stops at Troas, he's expecting to see Titus come to visit him. And he's on his way to Macedonia, and he's going to go to Corinth. Verse 12. Now, when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, and found that the Lord had opened a door for me. Wow! The Lord had opened a door. He's going to this port city, and he realizes when he arrives there that he's got opportunity of reaching people. Very exciting. We hope a door will be opened for our team going to Portland. A door opening for them. Yet, yet, he says in the next verse, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. He was going to meet Titus. He wanted to know 
what Titus was going to say about the Corinthian church. It's on his mind all the time. He wants to meet, he wants to talk it out. He's brought down by it practically, and he's waiting for Titus to come, but Titus doesn't turn up. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. What? <laughs> what? Now we can pass over that very, very quickly. He has just said he's got opportunity to witness profitably a door is open for him but due to the fact that he's so stressed out because he doesn't know what's going on in Corinth he doesn't know what Titus is going to say because Titus hasn't turned up he moves on to Macedonia in order to meet Titus first before he does anything and in Macedonia we read in chapter 7 just read it for you but God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus and not only by his coming but also by the comfort you had given him he told us about your longing for me your deep sorrow for your ardent concern for me so that my joy was greater than ever in other words when he meets Titus if he's much better oh Oh, I was so worried about what was going on in Corinth. He was taken up by anxiety by what was going on in Corinth. And he's waiting for this report. And he seems not to be able to do anything until he gets the report. Do you know what I like about that? That's just like me. And very often it's just like you. Sometimes it seems that we can't carry on and continue because there's so much in our minds. We can't even take advantage of opportunities that are before us. And I want to say, firstly, before we come to this long digression, which will take us a few weeks to go through, that here we see something of the Apostle Paul's humanity. He is a human apostle. He is not Superman. He is not one of the league of whatever, and I can't remember them, but superheroes that people read about today and see. And sometimes we have a tendency to deify our heroes. In other words, we see them as practically gods. They become close to perfect. They never make mistakes. And slowly, they become a figment of our fertile imagination. This can happen to any sort of hero. Sports stars, rock icons, all sorts of people. All sorts of people. We can look up to them and we're so impressed by them, we tend to think they can't do anything wrong. They are wonderful. It may be a, a politician. It may be a poet, it may be a writer, could be anybody. And sometimes we look up to Paul as if he was also the A son of God and never made mistakes or never felt weakness. But the reality is he confesses that he's weak. His mind is so clogged up with the situation at Corinth it seems to be interfering even with his work. And besides that, he misses Titus because he needs other people with him. Amen! I am so glad that my hero, Paul, is also weak. 
I need weak heroes. Do you get the point I'm trying to make? I need weak heroes who get over their weakness. I don't want Clark Kent's who are actually Superman. I don't want them. Because I am not Clark Kent, believe it or not. I know my wife thinks I am. All right, she regards me as, as a Superman, but that's besides the point, okay? But the reality is this guy is worn out. He's worn out with the situation. And he needs to sort out the Corinthians before he can do anything else. And he says this very clearly, in case you think I'm reading into this. He says it very clearly in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, verses 28-29. Listen. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches who is weak and I do not feel weak. Oh! He is not pretending that he is Superman. Actually, he is someone called of God who knows his weaknesses, who feels anxiety, but doesn't give up. Hallelujah for that. Hallelujah for that. He appreciates his co-workers. He needs co-workers. If you read the letters of Paul, at the end of the letters, time and time again, he will say, oh, make sure Mark comes along, I miss him. Or tell Mark to bring the book, or tell him to... He really appreciates people around him. He is not just someone who's by himself, some gladiator who is fighting against everything. He is not a gladiator, he's a soldier as part of an army. He doesn't just fight by himself. He fights with other people. In our struggles, we need to be open. And we need other people with us as well. Then, having noted that, Paul goes off right off the point. And he doesn't return to the point till chapter 7, verse 5. That's a digression. That's what you call a digression of about five chapters. Something clicks in his mind, and he runs into this click. And that's why I spoke about digression uh, so, so uh, emphatically at the beginning of this service. Now, he doesn't totally go off the point. Not at all. But he stops giving the narrative of what's happening in his life. And he says, and he begins to dive into the invisible narrative of his life. He begins to speak about ministry in general. And you could say that the next few chapters are a contemplation of his calling and of Christian ministry. And because that's the case, that's to do with all of us. He has told us some details, everyday details, up till now. Yet, in the next few chapters, he is going to put God into the picture as an overview of what's happening. 
He refuses just to see his narrative narrowly. Rather, he sees it in the context of Almighty God. And this is what he's going to do. Now, believe it or not, this reminds me of Steinbeck's great novel, The Grapes of Wrath. Now, grapes, how many of you have read The Grapes of Wrath? Okay, oh, that's not bad. That's not, that's not a bad. If you haven't read it, let me tell you this. It is an American classic. It's probably one of the great American classic writings of the 20th century. And in the novel, Grapes of Wrath, it's the story, it's the narrative story of the Jord family as they migrate from Oklahoma to find work orange picking in California. It's the Dust Bowl period of the 19, late 1920s and 1930s. And the narrative is brilliant, telling the stories, the characters, what they go through, how the police treat them, how they don't have enough money, how, how the grandmother dies at the side of the road. And it's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. But every now and again, Steinbeck stops his narrative. And there are a number of chapters where he sort of jumps up and has a view of what's happening throughout the whole of America. He stops the narrative and puts them in the context of everything else that is happening. He seems to stop. And he, he tells the view in great poetic brilliance. And then he goes back to the narrative. And then he'll stop again. And it's, it's marvellous. It's marvellous. In other words, he's trying to gain a philosophical meaning about what is happening. Well, here we have Paul gaining a theological commentary of the meaning of his ministry. So he walks away from the detail and seeks to climb the mountain to have a great view of it all. Psychologists argue that meaning is a key to happiness. Having meaning in your life is a key to happiness. I was reading The Atlantic for March this year, and the writer says that, uh, I love this word, ne never came across this word before. This is one you can use today and surprise people. Uh, the macronutrients of happiness. Isn't that wonderful? The macronutrients of happiness. So if someone asks you, what was this preacher talking about today? Oh, you speaking about the macronutrients of happiness. That would probably put everyone off for coming. But that's besides the point. And in these macronutrients of happiness, I hope I can remember that, uh, right? Psychologists speak of three things, generally. Satisfaction in life, enjoyment of life, and meaning of life. And those things come together, bring a feeling of happiness, okay? The big picture. Well, Paul here is speaking about meaning. And he is saying, even though I have been through all this hard stuff, which he's talked about, he's going to talk about as well again, he gives us the big picture about his motivation. He is motivated in what he does by meaning. And his meaning, he finds his meaning in the fact that God has called him. And we'll see that in a second. And he takes one picture 
in the next few verses. And the picture is called a triumph. I'm not talking about the motorbike, all right? We were brought up with a triumph in Britain, the Triumph 250, Triumph this, Triumph that. But the triumph, when we're speaking about it in biblical times, is a triumph given after a campaign to a general who won the campaign or to a Caesar who won the campaign, an emperor. They were allowed to march into Rome and display their victory. It was a massive celebration. Now, no triumph was identical, but they were similar. And I looked at, I got into reading triumphs in the original sources. It was so much fun. And I really went on a digression and reading far too much about triumph. But I wanted to get the picture. So this is what a triumph would look like. And do you know, an even better thing to do is just watch one of those Roman epics. I think Antony and Cleopatra, you'll see a triumph happening there. You'll see a triumph happening in a number of these Roman movies, okay? And you get an idea of what is seen. So to begin with, the procession, it was a big procession, you'd have the state officials coming, followed by trumpeters, followed with some of the spoils of war. In other words, massive floats. Think of a carnival, big carnival, massive floats, and on the floats there would be things that they took from the enemy, or scenes like living tableaus of how they beat this city, or how they did this, how they did that. Sometimes they even brought ships and pulled the ships coming through. They would then have a, a white bull, which would be taken through the streets, and that white bull would be sacrificed. Then came the captives, princes, leaders of the army who'd lost the battle. They were in chains and they would be led next. Then came some more musicians. Then came the priests. This is a big carnival. This is a big carnival. And they, they were burning incense, and incense all over the place. So it was a feast for the eyes, and also a feast for those who enjoyed smell. Generally then, the, the, the general, okay, the general would be in a, a chariot, and the chariot, he'd be standing in the chariot, and he'd have a, an ivory scepter there and he'd have someone behind him holding some laurel things above his head the chariot generally had two or four white horses so this you can imagine the streets of rome didn't happen very often now some went wild here pompey when he came in had his chariots drawn by elephants i just want you to imagine that I've got one picture there to help you. Mark Antony, in his triumph, had lions. I wouldn't trust lions pulling my chariot. Another one had tigers, and Aurelius, for some reason, had deer uh, coming through there. And as I said, you'd have a slave behind him holding him. And it was said that the slave would say, Remember, thou art but a man. Remember that thou art but a man in order to keep him in his place. And this, as I said, didn't happen regularly. It was a triumph. It was something special. The commander had to be there during the fight. He had to have finished the campaign. 
the region had to be pacified, all troops had to be brought home, and uh, he'd have to have to have extended the territory. So to get this, you had to be brilliant. So the last triumph in Rome, just before Paul is writing this, and people would talk about this triumph. Everybody would talk about the triumph. And it happened just a few years before Paul is writing this. Now, it seems that Paul himself has never been to Rome. He's on his way to Rome. But obviously, he knows what's happening as a Roman citizen. And the last big triumph was the victory of Ostorius over the Britons in the 50s. They were celebrating my defeat of my people. Well, I thought, goodness gracious. So I looked a bit more detail. The leader of the British who fought the Romans in England, then in South and North Wales, was a man called Caracatus. Caracatus. I was brought up with Caracatus, but not as Caracatus, but as the Welsh Caradog. Caradog. And he was a leader, and he was captured, and he was going to be killed. But he stood up, and he spoke to his spirit. He spoke to Claudius and gave such a brilliant speech. He was Welsh. He had such a brilliant speech, okay, that they let him off and he lived in Rome for the rest of his life, okay, him and his followers. It's good being Welsh. You can get away with anything, even a triumph where you're going to be executed. But that's my digression, by the way, in case you didn't recognise. It's there as a digression, illustrating the digression of Paul's digression, anyway. So Paul takes this picture and he uses it as an illustration of meaning in life for him, meaning in ministry. And I just want to note very quickly, just three or four things that might have touched Paul. Number one, he wants to show his readers that he is part of a winning team. So far, he spoke about troubles and hassle and pressures and problems. But he wants to make it clear that's not the whole story in ministry. Rather, he sees himself in a triumphal procession, not of the emperor, but of Christ. Christ is the winner. He is in the chariot coming in, and Paul is walking with him. And I want to emphasize this this morning. Those of you who might not know much about Christianity, you might know that Jesus Christ died on the cross, and many people would say, oh, that was such a tragedy. For Christians, it was a triumph. It was a triumph over death. It was a triumph for the forgiveness of sin. It was him in his hour where he provided forgiveness for the whole world. It's a triumph. A triumph. And in three days' time, the resurrection is a triumph over death. It's a hope for the future. It's a hope for those who have blown it in this life. It's a hope 
for forgiveness and the power of living a new life. And now that triumphant Christ has ascended to the right hand of the Father. He now rules. Read Romans 8. That is a triumph. And Paul says, I am in that procession of triumph. I am in the procession of triumph. Christus victor, as one theologian of the 20th century spoke of Christ. And he lets people know that ministry isn't just hardship. It's just not small narratives, but it is the greater narrative of Christ's victory. A victory of Christ against all odds, a personal victory, a victory over pain, a victory over discouragement, a victory over the evil one in temptation in the desert. Christ triumphs. Here is another triumphal entry, which is somewhat different of his triumphant entry in his last week of life. This is the victorious entry, and Paul sees himself walking there with the triumphant general of general Christ. Now, I love, believe it or not, I don't think I've ever said this, publicly anyway. I'm, I'm not mad on music that much, but you know music I really love? Marching music. Oh, I'm sorry, forgive me, forgive me. And the marching music I really, really love. And do you know what happens? Once I get onto this on YouTube, it takes you to more of it. So I can spend hours on YouTube listening to this. And it's marching music of the pipes. When the Scottish regiments come home from where, where it used to be Iraq, Afghanistan, wherever they were uh, in, the, in, in the Balkans, then that regiment would walk through the city they came from. And I love watching them. And they're marching there, you know, it's brilliant. Even with the kilts, they are brilliant. And they're marching as if they're victorious because they've been victorious. Because they've been victorious. Paul sees himself as part of that march. Part of the march. Secondly, some of you are thinking, wait a minute, Pastor, whoa, 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 whoa. That's okay, sounds all right, but if I remember what you just said about the, the triumph, um, there were captives there, and Paul calls himself a captive, not a soldier. You will have noticed that. He said, he's, I'm a captive. Verse 14, always leads us as captives in Christ's traditional uh, triumph. Does that mean that we are like captives in a triumph? Yes, but no. Paul doesn't make a mistake. Paul is clear that he has been captured by Christ. In other words, at one time, he was an enemy. You read that in Ephesians 2. He was against Christ, living in rebellion, in disobedience, gratifying his own sinful nature. He was anti the church. He was in rebellion. But now he has been captured by Christ. But he is not being sold as a slave or executed or he's going to die in the Colosseum. Now these captives of Christ are bought by the general and they are his. So he is a captive who is on the winning side. 
on the winning side. So he marches with the person who's captured him. And in one sense, if you're a Christian, you've been captured by Christ. Captured. But you've been captured into victory. Into victory. Thirdly, the sacrifices that were... Con- as, as the procession passed, the priests were there, you know, sort of burning incense. Now, I haven't been to... We, have, we haven't got any incense in this church. For those of you who love incense, I'm sorry about that, okay? But maybe you can buy some and you can... You know, don't take it to church, but you can have it in your front room or whatever, and that's okay. But I've been, I've been to a few churches which are big on incense. Now, the Roman Catholic Church is, is quite big on incense. But they're nothing compared to the Greek Orthodox Church or the Coptic Church. And the Greek Orthodox Church and the Coptic Church, they love incense. They love incense. I remember being in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre on a Sunday in Jerusalem. And there were all sorts, there were the Arminian church there, the Greek church there, the Coptic church, and they were all worshipping at the same time, different parts of the church, and they all had their incense, you know. They're going on with their incense. It was incredible. No, I'm not sure it's theologically accurate or not, but I loved it. I'm sorry. All right, it's a confession. I loved it. And I'm not trying to hint that we should have incense here or anything like that, okay? I'm not hinting that that is the case. But there was something about it. There was something about it. But Paul here is taking the illustration, not of the church, but of all this incense. That, so when the procession passed, everyone would smell the procession, the, the procession. And he says, that's just like us, because they hear the gospel. They feel the gospel. That's our ministry. As we walk, as we process, so the incense of the gospel, the message of the gospel, spreads. Marches proclaim that Christ is victorious. And our witness to that is the incense that people smell. Verse 14. He uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. Do you know the gospel message smells good (laughs) to those who are going to respond to it? It's a witness to the great news of forgiveness and a new start. It does them something from the heart. Listen. We do not peddle the word of God for profit. In other words... He is totally captivated by Christ. This is not a money-making thing. Rather, he recognizes, as he began this letter, in verse 17, chapter 1, as someone sent from God. Verse 17, I'm sorry, chapter 2. Remember verse 1, right at the beginning, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. This is the big picture. And simply what I want to say this morning is this. In your service to Christ, you will have smaller pictures. You will have, I've got to look after the youth group. I'm doing the women's ministry. I'm doing a Bible study. Or I'm doing this. I'm doing that. I've got to do that. Right? All of us should have a ministry. And they're small little narratives. But the meaning of all those is in the big over picture. 
that whatever we do in the name of Christ, we do marching in victory. Victory. We follow behind that chariot. And Christ is in that chariot. And we walk tall in that chariot. We walk tall behind that. Because we have the victory in Christ. Sometimes the narratives can be hard. Not all the time. Sometimes. But when we remind ourselves that we walk behind a victorious general, then my heart gets strangely warmed. And we all need that most of the time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are ascended to the right hand of God. Thank you, Jesus, that you're ascended to the right hand. Thank you that you have come in victory. You overcame death, overcame weakness, overcame those who were against you, and bought us salvation, and brought us new life. May we all see ourselves as part of that celebration and part of that march. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.